0: Welcome to The Q-Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about, but seldom talk about.
1: You found The Q-Word Podcast.
0: Hello, Nisa. How are you today? Hey, Lisa. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It's been a minute or two, but we have a very interesting guest with us today and some super sexy stuff to talk about.
2: Yeah, so I am totally digging this topic um, and our guest. Um really excited to have her here with us. She did her residency uh, at AirCare in Cincinnati, where she is from. She was there for four years She's now at the University of New Mexico Lifeguard Air Emergency Services, where she is a flight physician. And Ooh. there are very few programs in the United States that have flight physicians, even fewer that have them um, on every shift. And she, I think she told us it was single digits, um, whereas Dr. Amanda Humphreys ventura you were telling us that in the deve- the rest of the developed world, that is not an uncommon practice.
0: So welcome to the Q Word podcast.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: We're so excited to have you. So does that mean if you're a flight physician, you have the same crazy hours that Nisa has? He's like 24 hours on and then 24 hours off and then you get calls in the middle of the night and have to strap on your flight suit and go out at two o'clock in the morning and pick up somebody in the middle of a field somewhere?
1: Yeah, the worst is when your pilot told you that weather was going to be bad that night, and so you went to sleep thinking you weren't going to have to wake up, and the tones drop at 5 a.m., and you don't know who you are or where you are, but you got to get to the aircraft you're, right you're away.
2: You're waiting for that to hit, turn down for weather, and he's like, we're accepting. You're like, wait, what?
1: <laughs> we are?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do not know how you guys do that. I really, really don't, but... Uh, the fact that there's uh, physicians in flight, that seems, I mean, now that you mention it, it sounds like the kind of thing that we should have, but it's a hard road to toe for our doctors. I mean, for anybody, but you know, you could be comfy, sitting pretty in your private practice someplace. So what made you decide to go in this direction? I know it's a little off topic, but I'm curious.
1: No, no worries. What would be the fun in that? That just sounds so boring. Um, no no offense to the private practice folks out there. We need you. I need you. But for me, um, I actually was never a paramedic. Um, that is one of my greatest regrets in life um, because my favorite, um, absolute favorite thing in the world is showing up on the side of the road in the middle of the night with me and my partner and we're going to figure it out. Um, one of the very first really sick patients I ever took care of uh, back at air care in Cincinnati. It was two or three in the morning. He had run his car into a telephone pole and he was a tough airway. And I had been a flight doc for about 10 minutes at this point. Um, and I was struggling. And I remember thinking, Where's the Calvary? And then I remember having this moment and going, Oh, Shit. That's me, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> oh, that's my job, right? I'm the Calvary. So wow. ever ever since then, I have embraced my role as the Calvary, and I I think I've gotten I've gotten a little more refined since I was that day at Love least.
0: It. That's super interesting. So, yeah, I've heard about the need for all the critical thinking. Just how. Um, you know, boots on the grounds. You've got to come up with all of the solutions. There's no backup. There's no extra equipment. There's no you can't call in for help. You've got to do it all right on the spot. And that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. It's a whole different skill set. You know, when I'm standing in the emergency department and a trauma patient comes into the bay and I rattle off the eight things that I want done right away, more or less, Eight things get done pretty close to right away. Um, the first time I did that in the back of the aircraft and it was me and my nurse, she looked at me and said, which ones are you going to do? Because there's only two of us. <laughs> so it makes you a lot more relevant in the ER too because you gain some practical skills. Um, I'm sure that you guys will appreciate that prior to doing a lot of time flying, um, I had no idea how to make a medication go from in the vial to in the patient. (laughs) But I feel like I'm actually relatively adept at that at this point. (laughs) So when you fly, do you always fly
2: physician nurse or do you sometimes fly physician medic or physician respiratory therapist? Or how does your what's your mix?
1: Yeah. Um, so in Cincinnati, um, we flew either doc nurse or nurse practitioner nurse um, or on rare occasions, doc nurse practitioner. They tried not to let us fly without adult supervision like that, um, but it happened from time to time. Um, out here in New Mexico, there's a little more variability. Um, we can fly doc nurse, doc medic. Um, we have some respiratory therapists that can kind of that are kind of interchangeable with the medics. Um, and it really just has to do with who's on the schedule that day. Um, so in, in Ohio, the regulations state that you have to have a nurse on a critical care transport vehicle um, out here, there's a little more flexibility.
2: Amanda, we always start off by asking this. Um, do you say the keyword on shift?
1: Absolutely not. That is foolish.
2: (laughs) Well, we obviously we agree. We're all about evidence based practice. But don't you Mm -hmm. dare come at us with a superstitious word.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, in some situations I'm superstitious and in some situations I'm just a a a little. little (laughs) But that is I mean, that is sacred right. right there. That's
0: right. Amazing. So. Let's talk about what's on deck today. Traumatic arrest yes. algorithm. Three words. I know what arrest means. I know what an algorithm means. And I know what a trauma is. But you've put them all together. So, so, um, I, I was
2: sort of trained in the era of, um, if you have a trauma patient and they have arrested at any time during their resuscitation, whether you get them back or whether they're still in arrest, the chances of their survival is 0.01% or some very, very slim percent. And what we're doing now is all academic. It's just for educational purposes or it's a formality. Um And that was really, that really continues to still be the mindset. And it's been the mindset for at least the 15 years that I've been practicing Uh, Something that I've always heard. What what would you say to that mindset or those numbers? What have you learned about that idea?
1: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great point to lead with, um, because there's definitely still a large cohort of folks. Um, who would argue that we're kind of wasting our time talking about this. Um, But the more recent data really suggests that if managed correctly, um, the survival rate is significantly higher than that 0.1% that was always quoted. Um, Some of the data that's kind of coming out of the U.S. and Europe over the last, I would say, like five years or so, suggests that it's closer to about 8%. Um, So still, it's certainly the minority of patients that we're talking about. Um, But 8%, you know, we're getting close to 1 in 10. And I honestly think that as we change how we manage traumatic arrests, those numbers are going to go up even more. Um, but suffice it to say that it's not that 0.1%. Um, there was actually one particular study out of England and Wales, and they showed a 7.5 survival percent for patients that arrested either in the emergency department or arrested pre-hospital and were brought to the emergency department. So this is exactly the patient population that we're talking about. Um, and I think, I think that those numbers um, give us kind of a reason to, to talk about doing this a little bit
0: more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, that's a huge, huge difference and a huge shift. Mm-hmm. And it's not at all what we see on TV.
1: My mom loves those like medical dramas, and every once in a while, she'll try to sit me down in front of one of them um, just to see how I react. And I, on average, last about ninety seconds before I'm screaming (laughs) expletives at the television about how that's not how it works.
0: We should do a whole like series, like a a MST3K, just debunk everything that comes out of their mouth. We do it with each other.
1: And the Fire Department Chronicles actually just did it to Chicago Fire, and it's hysterical.
0: So back to television. We learn from TV all the time how easy it is to do chest compressions. Uh, it's, I know the holes, uh, what is it? Staying alive, uh, song, the whole rhythm, everything we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, uh, is the role of chest compressions in traumatic arrest?
1: Yes. I am so glad you asked. That's one of the things that I think, um, is the biggest paradigm shift from like standard cardiac arrest. Um, and when people first hear it, I think they're, they can be a little bit shocked, but chest compressions don't really have a significant role in traumatic arrest. And the reason, if you think about it, why do people die in traumatic arrest? One of the big ones is hemorrhage. Um, so what does it matter if you're running the pump if there's nothing in the pipes? Um, and the, I've had people ask me about the data on this. The answer is, there's not a ton. Um, there is a pig study out of England and there is some baboon data out of Washington. Um, but when you think about it, it kind of, it's, it's kind of intuitive. It kind of makes sense. So that pig study out of England, what they did is they took anesthetized pigs and they bled them down to a mean arterial pressure of 20. Um, and then held them there until they arrested. Um, so they essentially induced severe hemorrhagic shock um, that led to a traumatic cardiac arrest. And then they divided the animals into five groups. So one of the groups got chest compressions, one got whole blood, one got saline, one got whole blood and chest compressions, and the last group got saline and chest compressions. The only two groups that had any animals achieve ROSC was the whole blood alone group and the whole blood plus chest compressions group. So what that suggests to me is that it was the volume that was really giving you giving you the edge there Um, because you had two chest compression groups that didn't have any. Any animal, um, achieve ROSC. And like I said, I think it's kind of intuitive. Um, it doesn't really matter what you're doing with the pump if the, if the pipes are empty. Um, and, oh, go ahead.
0: Well, so basically you're saying you have somebody who's bleeding out,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. you
0: need to Fill them up with blood first mm-hmm. before you start trying to get the motor running again. Exactly. And
2: this is the part exactly, when I heard yeah. you present it, that it made the light bulb go on for me. As you said, it's, it's intuitive. It makes common sense. In fact, it it almost is mm-hmm. as if you do compressions that makes it worse because you're taking whatever's left and just shooting it out of whatever hole is is the hemorrhage.
1: Exactly.
2: that's
0: yeah. what I was going to ask. How do you know you're not you're pumping it in It's not just escaping out the the same bullet wound or or how do you fix that?
1: Exactly. So that's why when I kind of present this as an algorithm, I always say you got to plug the holes before you fill the tank. And oh. so really the first step, and in trauma, we're at a little bit we're actually at a little bit of an advantage compared to medical arrest. Because you're more likely to know what happened. They were hit by a car. They were shot. They were stabbed. You kind of get a little bit of clue as to where the holes might be. And so tourniquets, if you, if you need them, obviously. And the other thing that I think is underutilized is the pelvic binder. So some of our, some people in the hospital may be a little less familiar with them, may use them a little bit less. Um, the classic kind of the old classic move is to take a sheet and tie it around the pelvis. Um, but now they basically make commercial devices that just look a little slicker. Um, it really achieves the same goal. And so if you don't have a fancy commercial pelvic binder, the good old tying the sheet around the pelvis absolutely still works. Um, but that's something that I think is underutilized in the U.S. Um, I actually, I was really fortunate to spend a couple weeks in the summer of 2019 with Sydney Hymns in Sydney, Australia. Um, and they're really one of the premier, um, air medical outfits in the world. And they, uh, promote using a pelvic binder essentially anytime that you are putting a C collar on someone. Um, I think we can, I think you can narrow it down a little bit more, but I definitely think in blunt traumatic arrest, um, it is essentially always indicated The the classic teaching of we as medical professionals can tell an unstable pelvis by feeling and rocking the pelvis is just plain wrong Um, they've done research now looking at an orthopedic surgeon's ability to, um, to detect an open pelvis and orthopedic surgeons who should be the experts can tell about 50% of the time. Um, and so... We, who don't do it as often, obviously are probably going to be even less sensitive and specific. And so my kind of rule of thumb is if the patient is sick enough that they can't tell you it hurts when you manipulate their pelvis, then they probably deserve a pelvic binder. Um, And then one other thing that is worth mentioning here is this another classic teaching, another dogma. At some point in your career, a well-meaning orthopedic surgeon is going to tell you that you could potentially hurt a patient by putting a pelvic binder on. Um, The only way that you can hurt a patient in that situation is if you put it on too high. Um, An appropriately placed pelvic binder may not do anything, but it's not going to hurt anyone. Um, This is where it's a little sad that this does not have a visual component because I could show you my all-time favorite PowerPoint slide that I've ever made, which compares miniskirts and cummerbunds and reminds <laughs> us that pelvic binders should look like miniskirts, oh, not cummerbunds. Send us that and we'll
0: put it on our website. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, we could put it on the website. Awesome. So a, a pelvic binder, just to back it up to, to the layperson perspective for me, that's binding the person to the stretcher? So it is essentially, think of
1: it as like, uh, it's kind, It's like a corset, but okay. it goes low over the hips um, and then stabilizes any sort of unstable fracture. Um, so it's kind of like, think of it as like you are wrapping up the burrito and the patient okay. is the burrito filling.
0: Okay. And so if somebody has a gunshot wound in the shoulder. Not not going to be terribly helpful there. So this would okay, be for okay. blunt right. right. trauma. So it's not something for. Everybody. So penetrating
2: traumas that wouldn't yeah, be right. indicated. But for a blunt trauma, if you think they might have a pelvis, um, or you're you don't know, you can just put it on prophylactically, and absolutely. So if they're hypotensive or in arrest, um, you can put it on prophylactically, and you're not going to do any harm, but you might do a lot of help. Absolutely.
0: Yep. Okay. And in terms of plugging the whole... Does this apply? What if somebody's got internal bleeding and they're not bleeding? Does, is that the same sort of thing?
1: Sure. So this can help with that. Um This can help with sort of there, you know, there are there are a few spaces that someone can lose their entire blood volume. Um You can lose it into the chest cavity. You can lose it into the abdomen and pelvis cavity. You can actually lose it into a thigh. Um, a femur fracture can bleed most of the blood volume. Um, and the last one is you can lose it onto the floor. Um, and so this is one of the ways that we have to help manage that. Um, there are unfortunately some types of internal bleeding that there is not much that we can do outside of an operating room. Um, this is just working on addressing those that we those that we can.
0: Got it. OK.
2: So um, so when we are talking about um, withholding compressions and we're going to address the reversible causes of traumatic arrest, if if nurses mm-hmm. are freaking out about that a little bit, like I might have been maybe the first time I heard it, we can hearken back to your ACLS training and we're talking about some H's and T's. And there's a number of the H's and T's that speak to the causes of traumatic arrest. So we've talked a lot about hypovolemia. Um, The other H's Mm -hmm. and T's that would be involved in um, traumatic arrest would be hypoxia, oftentimes hypovolemia related. There's no carrying capacity because it's all on the floor or in the pelvis. Um, And then the Mm -hmm. other two would be tamponade and tension pneumo. So um, what are some of the ways that we can handle those, those H's and T's?
1: Yeah, that is, that is kind of the, the crux of the matter here, right? These are really the situations where we can make a difference. Um, and so kind of taking those one at a time, um, hypoxia is a good one to start with. Um, and that is really focusing on managing the airway. Um, I think. Most of us who have been doing this for any period of time can think of a time in your career where you weren't able to get the ET tube, you weren't able to get the intubation and you had to go to a supraglottic airway like an iGel or an LMA, um, whatever device your service uses. And we felt that like sense of great uh, and horrible failure. I can think of a time where I couldn't get a tube, had to go to a supraglottic. And was self-flagellating for like days afterwards. Um, luckily, I am here to tell you that the self-flagellating is completely unnecessary. It's not um, a great
0: therapeutic option.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and it's not evidence based. Yes. Yes. More importantly, um, because if there's evidence based self-flagellation, I am all about it. I am. I am there beating myself up, but. Um, one of my, actually one of my faculty out here, Darren Brody, um, is a big airway researcher and he has really made me a believer, um, in the at least equal nature and maybe in some cases superiority of the extraglottic airway. So he is a huge fan of what he calls RSA or rapid sequence airway, kind of analogous to RSI or rapid sequence intubation. And he, what he is promoting there is making the supraglottic airway your primary airway method, not always a backup. Um, there are some situations where intubation is superior, absolutely. If you've got someone who is aspirating tons of blood and vomit, then getting a tube through the cords certainly has its place. But in a lot of these patients, Getting an extra glottic. I personally am a fan of the eye gel, but whatever device your service uses um, is just as good. And it you're gonna spend less time on it. You're going to expose the patient to less hypoxia. It gives you the chance to stabilize them and then exchange it out for the more complicated oh, procedure God. once they're a little bit more so this stabilized. Is, this is my current so, clinical
2: hill to die on. Um, you've just completely yes. flipped my switch that you and I will both stipulate that this is not a definitive airway, but this is an airway. And if it's patent and if we're oxygenating mm-hmm. and ventilating, then we resuscitate the patient and once we've got them resuscitated, then we can change it out for a definitive airway. Oh, my gosh. It's music. It's music. It's beautiful.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we have all seen the clinical scenario in which the patient was alive and then they were given induction meds. Um, so one of the keys here, I think, is if you are backed into a corner where you have to use medications to get an airway in someone who is at or near an arresting state is there's a way to finesse this. There's a way to look really slick. Um, And that is half-dose induction and double-dose paralytic. And I think a lot of people are familiar with decreasing their induction agent to either half-dose or maybe less than half-dose, depending on how sick your patient is. And I should throw out the caveat that this isn't the patient who hasn't arrested yet. And a patient who is in arrest, they shouldn't need any sort of medication. Um, But if you've got the trauma patient who is very close to arrest, um, hemorrhagic shock or any kind of shock for that agent is a stellar induction agent. So you can minimize your use of ketamine or your induction agent of choice. The thing that I think that people are a little bit less familiar with is doubling your paralytic. So your sucks or your rock, whatever you like to use. And I often run into people who are mistaken, thinking that by increasing the paralytic, they are going to decrease the patient's blood pressure further, further, but it's the induction agent that does that. It is not the paralytic. In fact, if you paralyze someone without an induction agent and they are aware and paralyzed, that's going to send their blood pressure through the roof um, because they are freaking out in there. So in an awake patient, I don't recommend it. Um, that could be classified as mm-hmm. torture. But in someone who has profound hemorrhagic shock as a very strong induction agent, you want to give a more paralytic because what is shock? Shock is impaired perfusion, right? So anything that you're giving, you're going to get less effect if you were giving it to someone with a functioning circulatory system and so you want to make your one attempt at doing this airway as optimal as possible and so give them more paralytic get do everything you can to give yourself the best view the best chance that you have to secure that airway as fast as possible does that yes, make sense? That's
2: fantastic. So, mm-hmm. so they're not perfusing as well. So yes, that, that's perfect. Now, if you were, yeah. so because our audience is ER nurses and how mm-hmm. would you, if you were the ER nurse or what kind of conversation would you, um, how would you frame a conversation between an ER nurse? Obviously you're not doing it in the trauma bay over the patient as it's happening. You're doing this at some right, previous right. date. Right um or in a in a in a quality meeting or, you know, by the mm-hmm. water cooler or something, how would you bring this topic mm-hmm. up and say, hey, this is some really interesting information that I found, or here's some research, or here's some evidence, or here's a theory? Mm-hmm. Um, h- how what would that look like? That kind of conversation you'd have between a physician that you have a rapport with?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think it's kind of analogous to, you know, um how I my role as the resident kind of interfacing with the attending physician. Um, and I think in general, when we're talking about kind of trying to bring new information um, is the whole idea of like seek first to understand. Right. And so I might present it as, Hey, I heard this really interesting information. What do you think of it? Um, and trying to approach it from that manner. Um, that would be my first tactic Um, and then if that didn't work, um, I would probably consider, I don't know. I would probably consider kind of talking to multiple individuals, um, and just kind of sharing with them, Hey, I heard this. It just kind of makes intuitive sense to me. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, that would be, that would be really how I would try to go about it.
2: I think that's great advice. Good.
0: Good. So you've been mentioning some drugs and I know of a drug that, uh, was traditionally or has traditionally been used in, um, cardiac arrest. Uh, we did a whole episode on the paramedic two trial, um, about using epinephrine in, uh, cardiac, uh, in cardiac arrest and that it's kind of a, they're, they're starting to poo poo that idea. Mm -hmm. What, what do you think about that and how, and what do you think its role is in dramatic arrest? Yes.
1: In the arena of traumatic arrest, may our dear friend Epi rest in peace.
0: <laughs> Be gone. Yes.
1: Yes. So, so there are plenty of roles for Epi in, in pre-hospital and emergency room medicine. Traumatic arrest is not one of them. Um, and it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier about plugging the holes before filling the tank. Um, if you think about, again, why people die, um, hemorrhagic shock is a big one. And you have to think about what epi does. Epi squeezes the pipes, right? And so in the case of someone who is bleeding out of holes, all you are really do is making them bleed out faster. So you are, in fact, expediting the end of your traumatic arrest, but not to the outcome that we're all going for. Um, there was a great study out of Japan, and it was essentially a registry of tens of thousands of cardiac arrests in Japan. And when they separated out the patients who had a blunt trauma as the, as the reason for their arrest, they found that they might get ROSC a little bit more often, but They had a decreased overall survival. So what that tells me is that we may transiently get a heartbeat back on someone who is just not salvageable, but decreased overall survival. Um, and so I am very passionate about the, the elimination of epi and traumatic arrest. Now, epi and medical arrest, I think is a whole different, uh, a whole different can of worms. And there certainly could be room to adjust the current protocols. Um, but in terms of trauma, um, when paramedic two itself looked at the use of epi and out of hospital arrest, um, they found increased likelihood of ROSC with epi versus placebo for medical patients, but not for trauma patients. So may epi rest in peace.
2: Right. Um so what would you say to, um, people who are listening to the podcast right now and are saying, ladies, you're just throwing ACLS out the window. You're just throwing BLS out the window. What about, uh, ATLS? What about ATCN? We learn, you know, what, mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. you just want us to disregard all of that?
1: Um, no, that's a great question. That's kind of the elephant in the room, right? Um, and what I would say about, well, first of all, ATLS, itself states that there is an increased mortality if you give a liter and a half or more of crystalloid. So even though they support starting with crystalloid, they then turn around and say, ah, but not too much because you increase mortality. Um, but no, I think that the general concept here, ACLS, ATLS, BLS, everything Ls, um, they're great starting points, right? They're, they are, they serve a great purpose and that they provide the initial familiarization with principles. Um, but we are the experts. So we are the, the undisputed experts in pre-hospital and kind of initial moments of, of, of trauma resuscitation. And so we get to be a little bit fancier. I think that ATLS and ACLS provides a fantastic outline um, for people that want to be of assistance if they come upon these situations once in a while. Um, we have made a career out of seeking out these situations. And so we the impetus is on us um, to be cutting edge in our research. And we all know that, you know, research takes a while to make it to the ma- mainstream medicine, right? We need to be a little bit, a little bit quicker in that, um, because our patients are, they need us now, basically. That's right.
2: And I would say that our, in-hospital ER equivalent nurses, those who are in the trauma bay, those who are listening to podcasts, those who are participating in foam ed, those are the nurses that are craving that kind of thing too. They want the cutting edge stuff. They want the best for their patients. And, um, absolutely. Yeah. And certainly they are, uh, they're the ones that are digging for the latest and the best information and advocacy for patients.
1: That's one of the things that is so great about FOAM is that the turnaround time is faster. And so we're able to get the information out quicker than we would like say through the textbook mm-hmm. or through these major um, these major systems that have layers of administration
0: that they have to get things approved by. That's one of the main reasons for this podcast is challenging these paradigms um and the central dogma we even have uh, an episode one of our earlier episodes was about you know killing sacred cows and dismantling these, these dogmas that have long kept medical technology in the same place because people are just used to doing things the way they've always done them yeah.
1: mm-hmm
2: so um back to filling the pipes, and you mentioned this when we were talking about crystalloids and, and ATLS and ATCN's recommendations. So can you dig in and talk more about what your recommendations are based on the latest research for volume resuscitation, specifically in the traumatic arrest patient?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously this comes with the caveat that different services carry different things. You have to work within the confines of the options that you're given. Um, but the overarching principle here is that blood is for bleeding and salt water is for cooking pasta. Um, (laughs) and thank God. Yes.
0: yes, (laughs) For that distinction. Yes.
1: And don't get me wrong. I love pasta. Um, so there is a role for salt water, but, but no, the, it's funny. Um, Back in the day in battlefield medicine in the military, they did, you know, person to person transfusion. They did the, you know, the most raw whole um, whole blood transfusion that one can think of. And then it fell out of favor for component therapy. And now the circle is coming back around. And we're realizing that the closer to, you know, if what you're giving them is as close as possible to what they're losing, patients do better. Um, and I think we started to figure this out um, back about 10 years ago. Um, there was a trial called the PROPER trial. Um, and actually, um, to to demonstrate how old I am, I was a research assistant that worked on the PROPER trial. Um, my job was actually to follow trauma patients around the ED and document the blood product that they received and collect all the labels off of all the blood bags. Um Wow. Yes, it was a grand adventure. Um, but for but for an excited little med student, it was I mean, it was great. It was I mean, it was the best job ever. Um, but no, the main question in that trial was, which ratio of product is better? Do we are we better off giving equal parts, red packed red blood cells and plasma? Or should we be giving two units of packed red blood cell for every unit of plasma. And we found that in general, a one-to-one ratio. So um, um, giving things back in the same ratio that they're lost was the best, uh, the best for the patient. And so that really got us um, thinking about de-emphasizing the packed red blood cells. They're obviously a necessary component, um, but plasma is probably just as necessary. And now the the most up-to-date rate research is showing that using whole blood is even better. And they're doing some fantastic and I think really exciting research down in Texas um, that's showing both the efficacy, but more importantly, the feasibility of giving whole blood at the point of injury, both in the air and on the ground. Um, And I think that They're proving that it is feasible is one of the biggest hurdles, right? Because whole blood is a precious resource. Um, if we are putting it on trucks and helicopters and then subsequently wasting it, um, we are doing a huge disservice to multiple patients. Um, but showing that we're able to keep it We're able to keep it at usable temperatures um, because that's the big big issue, right, is that we can't let it get too warm. We've got to keep it cold um, before we put it in the patient. Showing that we can do this um, without wasting blood product is huge um, because the data shows that whole blood is absolutely the best option. Um, If you, like me, are in a system where blood components are what you have, then I think that focusing on balanced resuscitation has a role. Um, the, the PAMPER trial out of Pittsburgh, so pre-hospital plasma during air medical transport and trauma patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock, showed that when you incorporated plasma as opposed to standard of care, which their definition of standard of care included packed red blood cell transfusion, um, incorporating plasma had a significant, um, mortality benefit. So at the end of the day, um, the closer you can get to giving back what the patient's losing, the better.
2: And again, doesn't that just make good common sense? Why, why, why are know. we surprised that that was the answer? I,
1: what, right, right. I, I love when people are like, Oh, your algorithm is so cutting edge. I'm like, I'm not actually that smart. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I just have been blessed with the gift of a little bit of yeah. common sense. And what
2: about whole blood? What does whole blood look like in the ER or in the trauma bay? Are hospitals doing that? Or are they doing one to one to one MTP? Or, I mean, I know they are <laughs> doing one to one to one. Um, is there a whole blood? <laughs> is that significant in, in ERs?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely varies from facility to facility, but I think, the ER is a little bit ahead of the pre-hospital uh, realm in this area, just because by being in the hospital, you've got the blood bank right, right there. A lot easier. Um, and so it's easier, yeah, it's easier to maintain a whole blood sure. supply. Um, I know when I was leaving um, Cincinnati, when I was finishing residency there and heading out to New Mexico, they were really picking up um, their whole blood program. Um, it's logistics are really the big hurdle sure. now. Um, I think we, I think people are more and more recognizing that it's the way to go. It's just, it's just getting through the logistics.
2: Right. right. So I wonder if we could get more people donating, if that would be, you know, if we had a better supply, still feasibility, you still have to store it well, but yep. more donation. Absolutely. Um, Yep. Is PEA and traumatic arrest really PEA always?
1: Ooh. So PEA, I think is probably the most interesting of the varieties of cardiac arrest. Um,
0: Can you uh, define what it is? Yes,
1: absolutely. So PEA is pulseless electrical activity. And what that means is that if you've got the patient on the monitor, it's going to look like they have a regular sinus rhythm. Um, but they don't have pulses to correspond. And so that's the classic, like, oh, the monitor looks fine. Why does that patient look so dead? It's because they are. Um, And so the interesting thing about PEA is you have to ask the question, is it really pulseless or can we just not feel the pulses? So um, this is where I think this is the major role of ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Um, the, because the question becomes, is the patient really pulseless? Has the heart really stopped? Or is, are they just in such severe shock that we don't have the ability to feel the pulses when we do our standard pulse checks in our standard locations? Another thing that can certainly contribute to this is, Fact of the matter is, our patients don't always have the most amenable body habitus to feeling pulses. Um, we used to refer to Cincinnati normal and Cincinnati skinny in in Cincinnati. Um, we call it Georgia fluffy. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, funny, Ooh. so funny aside here, when I was in Sydney, um, their population tends to be very fit, and if a patient weighed a 100 kilos, that was noteworthy to them. Like that was bariatric. Like that was something that they talked about the next day, and I was like, "Y'all are yeah, precious, that's, just precious." <laughs>
0: that's, that's wow. I, I'm gonna have to ask my doctor friends up here what the term is yeah. in Massachusetts.
1: I'm sure they have yeah. one. I, I promise you, they have one. But no, so yeah. so yeah. So this is where I think that ultrasound um, can change um, um, can change our our management. Because if you put the ultrasound probe on the chest and you see a heart that's not moving, then you're going to go down your cardiac arrest pathway. If you see a heart that has organized contraction, then you know it's actually trying, and you just can't appreciate the pulses. And so one thing to think about here is this really um, this can change how you think about kind of the classic argument of. Load and go versus stay and play. So do we want to get this patient to the hospital as fast as possible, or do we want to stay and work on scene? In general, the data shows that cardiac arrest is best managed on scene. Um, But if you've got a patient who's not in arrest and they're just severely hypotensive and just need, um, you know, that patient probably is going to need volume. You want to get them to the definitive source of volume. So we typically, you know, out of the hospital have a limited supply. Um, and so that, that patient, I would air more towards the side of getting out of there as fast as possible. Um, but yeah, PEA and then, this is a good, this is kind of a good segue to go back and cover a couple of the other major causes of PEA and traumatic arrest that we brought up earlier. Um, and the big one is tension pneumothorax. So I would argue that this is like the most reversible cause of death by traumatic arrest. We know that there are multiple causes. This is probably the one that has, and I don't have data to back this up, but I would make an educated guess that this is probably the one that we get the most um, the most uh, return to spontaneous circulation. Um, and that's because it's so easy to fix. So the the answer here is decompressing the chest, right? So you want to provide a pathway for that air that has built up between the lung and the chest wall. You want to provide a pathway for it to get out so that the lung has room to expand again. And the heart has room to fill with blood again, because that's really, that's the mechanism by which these people have died. The heart has run out of room to fill with blood. The lung has run out of room to expand. And so there's really two ways to do this. There's needle decompression and there's open decompression. Needle decompression or needle thoracostomy is where you use a large gauge needle. So classically kind of the 10 gauge blow dart um, to poke a hole in the chest to allow that air to escape. Um, Sometimes that works, um, but the data shows that it doesn't always work. Again, we go back to our patients don't always have the best body habitus for this. So the real absolute definitive answer here is open thoracostomy. So you make a scalpel incision, you dissect either with blunt instruments or your finger, depending on kind of the flavor that you like. And then you actually get your finger in the chest cavity and touch the lung. That's really the only way to absolutely know definitively that you have relieved either attention pneumo or a hemothorax, so a large amount of blood building up in that cavity. Now, again, there's the caveat that depending on your level of licensure and the state that you practice in, not all places allow all pre-hospital providers to do open thoracostomy. So you may only have, the needle may be your only option. And so in that case, there's a couple things that I want to point out. The first is if you needle the chest and you get improvement, but it, you subsequently start to have a decline in vital signs again, don't hesitate to re-needle the chest because the hole that you're making is relatively small. And so you could absolutely see that seal off again. The second point that I wanna make is where you choose to needle the chest. So the classic teaching is the anterior chest, kind of the mid-clavicular line. So kind of like right in line with the nipple, but right about the second intercostal space. That's the classic teaching. Um, there's two issues there. Issue number one is that when they looked at the data, um, you were actually more likely to make it in the pleural space If you use the anterior or the mid axillary line. So now you're on the patient's side and you are essentially right below the armpit. Um, and the way that I teach people, the way that I tell people when you're in the heat of battle and you're, you're, you know, in a hurry, go where the armpit hair stops or where it would stop in someone that shaves. And that is, that's where you want to poke your hole. Um, yeah, so the data suggests that you are more likely to actually make it in the plural space there. And the other reason that I prefer that approach is there are less ways to get yourself in trouble. Um, with the anterior approach, there is a lot of high-priced real estate really close by. There's the heart itself. There's the great vessels. So the IVC, the SVC, the aorta, a whole lot of stuff that you don't want to go poking holes in. Um, and so that's why my preferred approach is the, is the, um, the anterior or mid-axillary approach. Now, again, there might be times where that's just not feasible, depending on how you find the patient if the patient is still entrapped. Um, in the aircraft that I used to fly in, the EC-145, the patient's right side was right up against the wall. So sometimes getting to that right axillary line was a little bit of a struggle depending on how big the patient was. Um, and so I think we should still definitely be proficient in the anterior approach, but I would say that going for the axillary line first is the best way to go about it.
2: That's a good tip with the armpit hair. I'm using that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because really, the only way that you can mess that up is if you go too low and you go south of the diaphragm. Because yeah. um, needle to the liver is a bad, bad day. So
2: if uh, if the patient is in the trauma bay and our ER nurses are advocating, they can advocate. Hey, let's do let's do anterior. Or um, mm-hmm. would you go? would you skip needle decompression altogether and go directly to a chest tube? Would you do open finger then if you had all the resources of a trauma bay, how would you handle it if you were in hospital?
1: So that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up for me personally. My personal algorithm is if the patient is alive, I start with a needle. And then if I have to progress to open, I do. If the patient is dead, I can't make them deader, and so I start with open because remember, it's the more definitive procedure. Okay. Um, so that is kind of my personal way of going about it. So for the
2: ER nurses' responsibility, because they don't in hospital, uh, perform either of those, the big responsibility would mm-hmm. be to recognize, um, and advocate for it. And then, yeah. um, and then, you know, in, in courses like TNCC and ATCN, that is procedure that is definitely taught because you may find yourself in a situation where you're pre-hospital or where you are advocating and saying, I I need you to stick a a needle in my patient's chest right now.
1: Right, right. And the other thing that I would mention in this context is we talked about chest compressions earlier. We talked about how they're not terribly helpful. Um, The one thing that I think differentiates chest compressions and epinephrine is epinephrine can be decidedly harmful. Chest compressions are probably not helpful but unlikely to cause harm. And so I would say to the person listening who has a fair amount of angst over that is there's really no there are there's not really going to be much detriment to doing chest compressions. Except the one time that I would absolutely insist that you withhold chest compressions is when you are doing these procedures that are more useful. Sure. Um, all of these things that we've talked about that can save a life. So getting a good airway, needling the chest, we'll touch on pericardiocentesis for cardiac tamponade. All of those are made more difficult and are more likely to fail under active CPR. And so I would still insist that CPR be withheld for when we're doing these procedures. All of these procedures should take priority and they should be done without CPR because they're just done better in that case.
2: Do you want to talk about tamponade then? Now's a good time for that.
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. So kind of when we're, we were talking about our H's and T's for PEA, the last one that can come up in in traumatic cardiac arrest that we really need to touch on is pericardios or is cardiac tamponade and pericardiocentesis. Now the elephant in the room here is that just like in, in tension pneumothorax, you've got needle decompression and open decompression and open decompression is certainly superior. Pericardiocentesis obviously has a, an analogous, more advanced procedure, and that is the thoracotomy. Um, In other developed countries, so London hymns, Sydney hymns, the thoracotomy or opening the chest completely so that you are actually looking at the heart is a procedure that is taught and performed. It is much less common here in the U.S. for pre-hospital providers to be doing open thoracotomies. Um, and so the alternative procedure that we have is pericardiocentesis, um, or using a long spinal needle to try and remove any blood that may be collecting in the pericardial sac around the heart, preventing the heart from being able to fill and squeeze, um, I think that ultrasound definitely plays a role here. We talked about using ultrasound to determine if you've got PEA or pseudo PEA. I think there's, it's also worthwhile to, in that same view, use ultrasound to determine if you've got cardiac tamponade or not. It's one of the, I think one of the, um, easiest things to teach and learn how to do effectively with ultrasound. Um, basically, is there a big collection of fluid around the heart or not? Um, and if there is, then you've already got the view so that you can do ultrasound-guided pericardiocentesis, um, and it's just a matter of inserting the needle. And I think this is analogous to the way that we perform central lines, right? Back in the day, the, the, the physicians that taught me how to do central lines always talked about the good old days where they did the blind IJ. That makes me tremble and and just like it gives me so much angst because now having done a whole bunch of ultrasound guided IJs you can see how individuals anatomy varies mm. um, and in a lot of cases big red is right there that carotid is right there next to that IJ and the thought of going in with a giant needle that close to big red and not knowing exactly where big red is just oh it 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 incites terror in my heart. Um, same with pericardiocentesis. I think that, you know, back in the day, we all did blind pericardiocentesis, and it was certainly better than nothing. Um, but now that ultrasound is becoming more and more ubiquitous, um ultrasound guided is the way to go. It's going to eliminate that classic question of, I just did a pericardiosynthesis, There is blood in my syringe. Is that from tamponade, or did I just biopsy the ventricle?
0: (laughs) I have to say, you keep saying cardiac tamponade, and I had an olive (laughs) tamponade on my deconstructed Caesar salad today, so I'm a little confused, um, but I I think I'm getting it. Those two episodes
2: of pericarditis (laughs) that you had, had they gotten worse, could have led to a tamponade, but you got antibiotics and you got fixed.
0: Yeah. Please. They did not lead no. to a tamponade, so <laughs> I hope it won't lead to a tamponade. So um, we've talked, you're talking needles, um, which leads me to this. You've been talking about blunt uh, traumatic arrest. Um, what about a penetrating traumatic arrest? Yeah. How do you handle those differently? Yeah,
1: so... The difference, I think the big difference between blunt and penetrating is that in blunt, it's typically a little less obvious why the person died. If someone has been shot in the chest or shot in the head, that really quickly narrows down the interventions that you need to try. Whereas blunt trauma can hide a lot of devastating injuries. Um, I had a patient who was in a significant motor vehicle accident. She looked like a lot of head trauma and certainly had head trauma, but ultimately went into cardiac arrest because of attention pneumothorax. Um, and so the difference between blunt and penetrating is in blunt, you have to faithfully work down your algorithm every time because you've got less data that helps you narrow in on one cause in penetrating, you've got more data that helps you narrow in on one cause. And so you can be a little bit more piecemeal with your algorithm. So Um, can you walk
2: us down that blunt one? So let's say that you're in the ER, you're doing one of your ER shifts in the trauma bay, and you have kind of a garden variety MVC, maybe it's a volunteer EMS, so you don't get a super great report. And now Mm -hmm. your patient is is arresting. Can you just walk us down all of the different, I mean, we've talked a a little bit about all of them, but just hit me with the algorithm.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I have this also on a fancy slide that we can post a visual um, as well, um, if you like me or a visual learner. But just to walk through it, um, if the heart is stopped after blunt trauma, so you've got blunt traumatic arrest, step one is you've got to plug the holes. So that's where we we talked about hemorrhage control. Tourniquets, if, if amenable. Pelvic binder is kind of the rule as opposed to the exception. Next up, now that we've plugged the holes, we gotta fill the tank. Um, and again, salt water is primarily great for cooking pasta. Blood is for bleeding. With the caveat that if you're in a bind and you, you need something to bridge until you can get blood, crystalloid is absolutely better than nothing. I know that I've kind of like, I've kind of talked shit about crystalloid, but it, it has a role. It is better than nothing. So then after that, um, you want to move quickly to your either needle or open thoracostomy, depending on what your state and your level of licensure allows. Um, for me personally, if open thoracostomy is on the table, I think that it is the superior procedure in the case, especially if the patient is, is in arrest. Um, but needle is certainly better than nothing. Following that, I would look at ultrasound plus minus pericardiocentesis to rule out cardiac tamponade as the mechanism of traumatic arrest, um, and then going to compressions only when it's not interfering with above. Um, and if you filled the tank, if you've given a large volume of blood, that is where compressions can certainly have a role Um, you want. If you've got those other time sensitive interventions out of the way, um, there may be a role for compressions to get that blood circulating, to get the heart jump started. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is to avoid epinephrine unless the one thing that we haven't talked about here is not all that looks like trauma is trauma. So the only time that I would think about epinephrine in the setting of cardiac arrest and trauma is when you're worried about an alternative cause of arrest. So did the patient have a medical event that led to trauma? I had a patient one time who was in a motor vehicle accident in cardiac arrest but the only sign of trauma on his body was the mark from the puck on the Lucas device. He was otherwise in a very low-speed MVC with no other signs of trauma. Turns out he had a cardiac event that led to his uh, motor vehicle accident. And so that's always something to keep in mind, especially for people that are working in the pre-hospital environment. You have the unique um, the unique distinction of being the only people who can appreciate that scene. And so looking for those subtleties, like did they try to stop? Were there skid marks? Um, look at the damage on the vehicle. Was it high mechanism, low mechanism? That can help you think outside the box a little bit. Um, and maybe put epi back into your algorithm if you're more worried about a medical event as your cause of trauma.
2: Good point. Yes. People have heart attacks and then fall off the scaffolding or wreck their car or whatever.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. That's
2: good, good, good. good. Um, let's see. All right. Um, so do you want to talk about trauma patients with traumatic brain injuries and special considerations for their resuscitation?
1: Absolutely. So there is one specific thing that I think is critical to to touch on, um, and traumatic brain injury gives us a great kind of illustration or a great way to discuss that. So we, we all remember, um, you know, the, the trauma triad, the things that kill trauma patients. Um, and one of those is clotting or more specifically lack thereof. The act of being in a traumatic event, um, causes damage to blood vessels and that impairs that interaction between the blood itself and the blood vessels that helps your body to form clots. So simply by the act of being a trauma patient, you've got impaired clotting ability. And then add to that all the things that we do to patients that further impairs their clotting ability. We give them medications. We give them things like crystalloid. All of that makes it harder to clot. And so that's why we are finding more and more that the answer to how much how much product do we give the patient? The answer is just enough, but not too much. And so in a run-of-the-mill blunt trauma patient, your goal systolic blood pressure is really in the 90s. It's lower than kind of what we all think of as a normal blood pressure. And that's because we don't want to do anything to damage those tenuous clots that are forming. We don't want to blow them out, if you will. And so in your standard run-of-the-mill trauma patient, um, we want to keep that pressure high enough to perfuse, but not too high that we're damaging those fragile blood clots. The one caveat to that is traumatic brain injury. Um, Dan Spate is a TBI researcher out of Arizona, and the um, University of Arizona and really the state of Arizona did a huge landmark trial a couple of years ago called the EPIC-TBI trial. The main thing that they were looking to study was, does providing standardized TBI education improve TBI care? The answer to that was yes, but they also found the things that are the most critical in TBI management. Um, and what they found were the two two big things that kill TBI patients are hypotension and hypoxia. They found that for if you had a single episode of hypotension, which they defined as a systolic pressure less than ninety from the time of first medical contact to hospital arrival, you had a 25% increase in mortality. Same was true for a single episode of hypoxia. So one sat less than 90, you had a 25% increase in mortality. If you had both a hypotensive episode and a hypoxic episode, you had a 50% increase in mortality. So we know that we should baby those clots in standard blunt trauma patients, but in TBI patients, we worsen their overall outcome if we let that systolic drop below 90. And so my answer to that is the brain is the hardest thing to replace. So if you're worried about significant brain injury, that's when you want to make sure that you don't let that pressure dip below 90. Um, so you, in your standard trauma patient, keep the pressure low, baby the clots in a TBI patient, protect the brain above all else, work to stop hemorrhage in other parts of the body in other ways.
2: Love it. Um, I am so excited about this information and excited to see um, where it goes. And I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. I feel like we're going to be watching you guys down in New Mexico. I feel like we're going to be watching the whole blood people down in Texas. And um, this is definitely the future of traumatic arrest. Do you have any further predictions? Any any crystal ball you want to let us in on?
1: Hmm. I think. Um. I think the real, the big push, and this isn't really even specific to traumatic arrest. Um, is doing more at the point of injury. That is the whole, um, basis behind the whole blood initiative in San Antonio is taking definitive care to the point of injury. Um, that's what they do in the military. They do as much as they can in the field. They do as much as they can in the field hospitals and they're seeing great results and so i think that is going to continue to be the theme in how we um and how we raise our game and how we take care of traumatically injured patients inside the united states um so that would be i think what i see coming um down the pike and then it's just working to further oper opera, operationalize these things that we're talking about today.
2: And I think another trend that I see is more dialed in custom care per patient. Instead of taking an ACLS algorithm and saying this applies to all arrests, we're dividing it and saying, no, when we have this kind of arrest, do it this way. And when we have this kind of arrest, do it this way. And dig more specifically into this particular patient's needs. And like you were saying, here's your jumping off point. But then dial it in to your specific patient, and I'm kind of seeing that more across the board with all
0: types of care. Um, and it's it's certainly what's happening in cancer care, and it's it's you know this specialized precision medicine that is tailored specifically to the patient. Um, so it's interesting to see that it's also happening here at the yeah at um, emergency the care EI level.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that we, um, you know, the the folks, those of us that spend time practicing in the hospital, we are finding out more and more that our counterparts outside the hospital. So I basically just made myself Jekyll and Hyde. Um, we are, we're, we're learning more about the critical thinking abilities of our counterparts outside the hospital. And the more license we give our outside the hospital selves to critical think, I think it's only going to benefit our patients.
0: Okay. So you recently appeared on our friends, uh, heavy lies, the helmet, uh, the two brothers, Mm -hmm. uh, the boone brothers, right? Yep. Is that correct? Yep. Um, and so you've been doing this podcast world tour, where you're spreading the word of this algorithm. So I'm hoping that between the listeners that listen to Heavy Lies the Helmet and those that listen to us, um, and then hopefully you'll get picked up by, you know, like Freakonomics, and Malcolm Gladwell will interview you, and then we'll get you in <laughs> Time Magazine, if that's still around, and we'll put you on the New York Times we can go ahead and spread the word about this exciting and sexy new approach to dealing with traumatic cardiac.
1: Arrest. I mean, like, can you guys be like my publicity your, crew? Cause y'all make listen, me sound we are good. Your girls Totally. Um, so listeners, if
2: you want Absolutely. another take on this, um, definitely if you're not already listening to heavy lies, the helmet, you should be,
0: but, um, t- totally ch- it's kind of in a companion piece to this because it's more about the pre-clinic, uh, the pre-hospital experience, yep. which we've covered somewhat here. But then, um, that's what happens before you get to the hospital. And then we've tried to cover a little bit more what happens when you actually get to the hospital. Um, and so between the two, we've covered, uh, the entire experience. People in ICU, they'll have to deal with it later. They'll, they'll have well, to if we didn't out know they out were out. doing Surely this, Surely they, but, you
2: know, great minds think alike. So.
1: Right. Right. Doesn't the ICU, like surely they've got their own set of podcasts, like something like K above four, Mag above two, like.
0: (laughs) Maybe we could go ahead and get that started. If well we had some ICU friends that we could bring in, but, you know, there's that, there's that, there's that rivalry, that ER ICU rivalry. Feeding
1: and growing. They're feeding and growing up there. We love (laughs) them.
0: They certainly are. (laughs) So we will definitely, um, get those slides from you. So we need to see the miniskirt versus the cummerbund, um, and then the slide that articulates your algorithm. And we will throw that up on the keyword podcast website, which is at the keywordpodcast.com. If anyone has any questions, please email us at uh, the keyword podcast at gmail.com. Amanda, do you have a Twitter handle or uh, anything like that you want to throw up there so people can can hit you or you uh, do you like to operate in the behind the scenes?
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I learned from my fearless medical director, uh, Bill Hankley, back at the University of Cincinnati that Twitter is the preferred method of communication. Um, for flight folks, so you guys can get me at at Doctor Pet Detective. Uh-huh. Um, the name Ventura. Oh, I had to capitalize it. on it. Yes. Oh my gosh! Amazing. You fit in so I
0: well love here. it. I love it. That's great.
2: We're definitely gonna have to collab in the future again on that Mystery Science 3000, Mystery Science Theater 3000 medical version.
1: Oh my goodness! Yes. Yes.
2: MST3K. Oh my yeah. goodness, <laughs>
1: please.
0: That is that would be yes. epic. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us this so evening. This fun. has been great. Yeah. I've learned a lot and we wish you all the best as you forge forward on this crusade. Let's get this let's let's get this whole new approach yes. Yes. out there awesome. in the world.
1: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, guys. This was fun.
0: Great. Thanks so much. Nisa, I will talk to you soon. All right. See ya. So talking about the arrest, you
2: you said Lisa, you guys strap on your flight suit at three in the morning. Like, what what do you think the
0: flight suit like? What are we strapping exactly? It's a zip onesie. I there's a I, there's a lot of there's not a lot of buckles and spikes and it is
1: it is <laughs> an a adult giant onesie. onesie. <laughs> Just anyway, okay. I know this is a little off topic, but the first time one of my male counterparts realized that being a female and wearing a flight suit made some activities a little more difficult, he came to appreciate us yes. a little bit more. And
2: the first, my very first shift in a flight suit, when I went into the disgusting staff bathroom to to use it the first time, yes. and I saw the, the arms of my flight suit going down to the crusted urine on the floor, and no one t- in yes. Slow no one had motion. taught me the tuck maneuver. I went out to my preceptor and was like,
1: "Why yes. didn't you teach me the tuck?
2: Because now I have to wear it the
1: rest <laughs> of the day with crusty urine on the sleeves. You're killing me. <laughs> so it's it's critical. It's critical. You got to uncuff your sleeves because you got to have enough length. Yeah, if these yeah. Yes. These are also, things that should be taught. There's two in zippers right
0: here
2: that are places where you stick the extra fentanyl and stuff. You can't tell your m- male partner just grab the fentanyl. Because then you're at second base with them and it's like a harassment issue. <laughs> Clearly a dude designed those. Anyway, there's a, so many things yeah, about our job. There's a whole episode dudes. on flight suits, but that's another that's a, that's another.
0: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like you could give some some fashion tips, too, because, you know, jumpsuits <laughs> are back in, you know, they're all in style. At least they were last season. So, you know, I have a jumpsuit and I don't know how to keep the arms from falling on the ground when I go. So you. I'm going to need to see tuck. the tech method. Well, we can diagram it, maybe put together a little PowerPoint presentation.